as you turn to Romans 8. I want to ask a couple of questions that might sound familiar to you. Do you do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? Is all creation groaning? Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. It really is. It's good that we remind ourselves of all these things. Broken world, shadows, deepening, creation groaning, new creation coming. Are you glad 2020 is over? Think about this time last year. This time last year. Did you have any idea what would unfold in 2020? Did it, did it go like you planned? Did you suffer loss? I know a lot of people did. I know a lot of people are. Did it make you groan? Because I'm here to make you groan today. That's my aim. I know that's a weird aim for a sermon in the last week of the year, but that's, that's my aim is to make you groan. And I want you to know that's okay. Christians groan. It's exactly what this text says in Romans 8, 23. That Christians groan. And I want you to see that, and I want us to understand that, and I want us to practice that together. I want us to practice Christian groaning. Let's read Romans 8, starting in verse 14 through verse 25. This is the Word of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided... We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, we know that the, the whole creation has been groaning, groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We're going to focus on this paragraph, verses 18 through 25, but especially on verse 23. I want you to see the, the, the context here. This one I'll backed up to, to verse 14. I want you to see the context. This first word in verse 18, the word for, connects what we're going to talk about today with what Paul just said. As a matter of fact, what we're going to talk about today and even to some degree, the rest of chapter 8 is just an elaboration of this theme that we see in verse 17. And that theme is this. Suffering, then glory. Like that's, that's the pattern. That's the, that's the pace of the Christian life. Suffering now, then glory forever. This is the sequence. This is, this is exactly what this passage is about. This is exactly what... Christian groaning is about the suffering of this present age. Now we, we normally would be preaching through the book of Matthew verse by verse and we've taken a pause and we're sort of looking at topical sermons. So this is going to be a little different than what we'd normally do. This is actually going to be more of an elaboration on Paul's three Main reasons for Christian groaning. Now, I know somebody's going to accuse me of preaching a sermon from Ecclesiastes instead of Romans 8, and I'm going to say guilty. This, this passage is about three things of Christian groaning. Groaning over the futility in this present life and groaning over the mortality, the corruption of our bodies and groaning for and longing for the redemption that's soon to come. And so I want you to groan today because Christians groan. That's what it says. Look in verse 23. It says we, he's writing this letter to Christians. He's writing it to us. He says we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan. Christians groan. If you have the first fruits of the Spirit, you groan. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ, he says in verse 9. 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you have the Spirit of Christ, you belong to Him. If you belong to Him, you groan. Christians groan. But we're not alone in our groaning. We groan with creation. Verse 22, it says, The whole creation is groaning. The the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. But not only creation, but we groan too. We groan with creation because we share something in common. We've been subjected to futility. We've been subjected to corruption. We share in that. We lament in that. We also share in this other thing. Redemption's coming. And we long, we groan for the coming redemption and the life to come. Do you groan in that way? Do you, do you groan in that way? We, we should groan over the futility of this present life. The whole creation is groaning. Why? Because creation has been subjected to futility. Look at verse 20. It's exactly what it says. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. What is futility? That this, this English word futility expresses this ineffectiveness, this inability to produce the results you want, to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. It's just futility. You try to do something, but you're just not successful. So some translators translate it frustration. The creation has been subjected to f- frustration, vanity, the King James says. And that should remind you of a, a book in the Old Testament, which is where my sermon's really coming from. The book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. So creation has been subjected to futility, but I want you to know who subjected it took futility. God did. It wasn't creation's choice. Creation was subjected, not willingly, but by Him who created and subjected it. I would argue that in verse 20, the word Him, H I M, should be capitalized because God has subjected creation to futility. Why? Because of sin. Specifically because of Adam's sin. When Adam sinned, God not only cursed all of humanity, but he cursed all of creation. Paul is echoing, all, pointing us all the way back to Genesis 3.16 when it says, Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. Creation is subjected to futility because of sin. Thorns and thistles 
it shall bring forth. In pain you shall eat. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat. Do you realize that? Do you, do you, have you ever stopped to think about what really occurred in that little moment, in that little micro moment of history when Adam ate the fruit, when Adam sinned against God, God cursed everything. Everything. All of humanity, all of creation, ruined, frustrated, given over to vanity and futility. Have you ever thought about that? What does that reveal to us? That God is holy. We are not. And sin is horrific. One sin. Man, if Adam's sin deserved all of that, if his one sin deserved all of that, what is my life? Life of rampant, willing, rebellious sin. What does that deserve? Creation subjected to futility. Humanity subjected to futility. In the first pages of Genesis, Adam has cursed the ground and now by the sweat of his brow, man, it's just going to be incredibly hard just to get a bite to eat. Thorns and thistles, not fruit everywhere. Hardship. Man, and you can hear, you start flipping the pages from that point on and it's horrific. And you can hear the groaning in Noah's daddy's mouth when he says, maybe this one right here. He, he, he lived 182 years subjected to futility of cursed ground and he names his son Rest. He says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed this one, maybe this one, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Humanity has been subjected to futility by God because of sin. We need to understand that, that this is God's design. Not only is this true, but this is God's design. We, we have been subjected to, in this way because of Him, because of sin. And this is how the book of Ecclesiastes starts. He says, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I want you to listen to these, a couple of quotes from one of the most well-respected commentators on that little book of Ecclesiastes. Just, I want you to listen to how he describes eloquently this subjection to futility by God. He says, as creator, God sets the whole scene. We're reminded that his world has its own obstinate shape, a certain built-in resistance that we can't iron out. 
As sovereign, God has prescribed the frustration we find in life. The treadmill, he says, the treadmill of existence, which is pictured in the very first chapter of this book, is God's appointment. He says there's so many fine, we have so many fine beginnings that double back on themselves. We have, we have journeys that end up where they began. Solomon, in the first chapter, he picks out three examples from creation that, that, that explains this endless round in nature. The sun and the wind and the ocean. And in verse 8, sums it up as unutterable weariness. And it holds up a mirror to our condition. Like the ocean that keeps receiving the river, the streams, and never gets full. We're fed and fed, but never filled. And like the wheel of nature, history is always turning back on itself, failing its promises. The journey goes on and on, and we never arrive. I want us to to consider three different examples of this futility that we're subjected to. These things that we, we should be groaning as humans, groaning as Christians. One is the, the futility of stuff. Just stuff. Money and cars and smartphones and Furniture and houses and just stuff. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2, he, he proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that all the stuff in the world will never fully satisfy the human heart. And he tried. He tried it. He tried all of it. He didn't hold nothing back. He gave himself everything a man could give himself. He built it or he bought it all. Houses and gardens and parks and vineyards and pools and slaves and herds and flocks and gold and silver and singers and all the concubines a man can house. And he says all is vanity. Just a striving after the wind. teaches us that money never satisfies. That when wealth increases, so do all the people and things that just eat it, eat it away. If it doesn't get spent or stolen or lost in a bad venture, guess what? You can't take it with you. Naked you came from your mother's womb and naked to the grave you'll go with nothing in your hand. And the greater Solomon, it's Jesus, teaches us the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and thieves break in and steal. The vanity of stuff. 
A new car, rust. House, termites, decay. That bulging bank account that you keep pouring into, if it survives the tax man, the bear market, and the rainy days, your children or your grandchildren or great-grandchildren will gladly spend it for you foolishly. If you don't believe me, ask every dead billionaire. Consider the futility of work. What, is it, what does man gain, Solomon says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What do you gain? Now take note, sidebar, neither Solomon nor Greg is denying all the other biblical truths about work. Yes, work is ordained by God. Work is necessary. It is often good for the common good. It is often righteously satisfying. But what does it ultimately accomplish for you in the end? I, I couldn't help but bring this illustration in right here. In, in China, that totalitarian socialistic society, everybody's got a job. Everybody's working. Every couple of blocks, there's a little old lady with a real sage broom sweeping. Every day. Even, even when we were there and everything was locked down, they were still sweeping. And man, there was not a speck of dust or trash in those streets. They were doing a good job. They were doing a good work. It was for the common good. But you know what? It never ended. Like every day they had to keep doing it. Trash was always still there. They never actually accomplished anything. And then, in the end, what is it going to matter when they stand before God and have never heard the gospel? What does man gain by all the toil? When you spend your whole life working, and in the end, what do you got to show for it? Solomon forces us to ask this question. For whom am I toiling? For whom am I toiling and depriving myself? He talks about how we work and work and work all day, every day, often to vexation, he says. And you know what? Even when we lay down at night, our heart is not at rest. How true is that? And after all of that, after all the toll that it takes on our body and on our mind and on our families, we leave it all behind for somebody else to enjoy. And worse than that, what does it matter when you stand before God? Or, in the words of the greater Solomon, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world 
to work and strive and gain the whole world, yet lose, forfeit his soul. Consider the futility of self. Self. The futility of so-called, your, your so-called self-determination. Your self-reliance. Self-sufficiency. It's a mirage. It's an illusion. It's a deception. I almost labeled this point the futility of forecasting. Because if you go back to this concept that this is all God's original design intently subjecting us to futility. You see, we think we know what's going on. We, we think we know what's going to happen. We think we can predict tomorrow. We think we can improve the circumstances or maybe even steer the paths of prom, providence. But we can't. Not one bit. Solomon teaches us that God has made it so we cannot find out. So that we cannot figure out or that we cannot predict what he's doing. One guy says, we cannot extrapolate from the present. You can't. It's going good today. I guess it'll go good tomorrow. Man, it's going bad today. I guess it's going to be bad tomorrow. Is it? Which one? No amount of wisdom, no amount of ingenuity, no amount of diligence, no amount of toil, meditation, effort will not move you one closer to finding out what God's doing. James explains it clear. Not quite as poetic as Solomon, just clear. Come now, you say, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we're, we will go into such and such a town and spend the year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? What is your life? That's what it is. That's what he says. It's a mist that appears for a little while and then... Vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if God wills, we will live and do this or that. You boast in your arrogance. That's what that's who we are. Our ignorance and our arrogance suppresses the truth. We do not determine the outcome. We do not know what tomorrow brings. And Jesus, again, is the one who paints the picture perfectly with that parable about the barn-building fool. He's got a plan. So I'm going to build some bigger barns. I'm going to tear down the ones I got. I'm going to build some bigger barns to star all my stuff and he convinces his soul man you're going to be in living peace and security and God says fool 
tonight, tonight, your soul will be required of you. And the things you've prepared, God says, whose will they be? Whoever I decide. That's it. Now, I want you to note right there in that parable, Jesus says, the final word of futility is death. Mortality is the capstone of futility. After your death, all your wealth will be eventually spent by others. All your accomplishments will be soon forgotten. On that very day, the Bible says, all your plans will perish when God takes your, that breath away. All your plans perish. This is why we groan. This is why we groan. We groan the futility of this present life and we groan the mortality, the corruption of our bodies because of sin. Creation is in bondage to corruption. We, we groan over this mortality that we have. We share this corruption, this decay, this decomposition, this perishableness, this mortality. We share it with creation. And creation groans. I mean, look around. Everything decays. Everything dies. This is the explanation for that. Metal. All the metal, it rusts. The bread molds. The meat rots. The leaves fall. Creatures die. Stars fade. We're in bondage to the same corruption. We fade. We die. When Adam sinned, death entered the world, and we died. Look at verse 10. This is the reality. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the body is dead because of sin. Look, look, look at yourself. Look around. The body what you see right now, the body is dead because of sin. Paul cries out in the end of chapter 7, Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? As was the man of dust, so are those who are of dust. Paul says, we know that in this tent we groan. We are mortals. Sorry if that's news to you. You are mortal. Our body is dead because of sin. Our body is wasting away. Day by day, our outer self is wasting away. We're decaying. We're not improving. I know, our, I know our church is, on average, younger than I am. 
So maybe this is news to you. But you're not improving. You are wasting away. Our heart and our flesh are failing. Don't turn there, but man, go check out of Ecclesiastes 12. First eight verses, just this poetic, poetic description of this wasting away. And it's addressed to the young man. It's addressed to the young man, to the young woman. He says, evil days are coming and the years are drawing near in which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Why? Because he goes on in this poetic way. He says, the days are growing in this body. They're growing darker. The days are growing darker. He says, our hands, the keepers of the house, tremble. The once strong man is now bent over in stiffness and pain. He says, the grinders cease because they're few. He says, the eyes are failing, the windows are growing dim. The grinding is low because eating becomes less and less. Sleeping becomes more and more difficult. Hearing becomes more and more difficult. There's this growing fear of falling. Your hair grows white. Walking becomes more difficult. You describe as a grasshopper dragging itself along, and it says, quote, desires fail. Our body is wasting away. Why? He says, because man is going to his eternal home. Why? Because the dust returns to the earth as it was. When the spirit returns to God, who gave it? Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. So he says. Humanity is in bondage to corruption, to decay, to death. Our body is dead because of sin. We are all going to die. But you know what? This is the most suppressed truth in the universe. We do not groan mortality like we should. We, we don't groan mortality like the Bible says we should. I've preached a handful of sermons, not many, but a handful of sermons. And always, always I start with this verse from Ecclesiastes 7 2. Don't you just listen? If you've never heard it, just listen. This is God speaking, telling you what is good. Is it good that we do these things? He says, It is better. It is better. To go to the house of mourning, funeral, than to go to the house of feasting, party. He says it's better to go to a funeral than to go to a party. We say no way. He says yes is better. Why? Because this is the end of all mankind. And the living, when they're there at the funeral, the living lay it to heart. We need to lay it to heart, brothers.
When you go to a funeral, you're forced to lay it to heart. You come face to face with your own end. This is the end for me. This is the end for you. This is a good exercise. Seriously, this is a good exercise to go to a funeral. This is a good exercise. The Bible says this is a good exercise to go to a graveyard. Just go to a graveyard and walk row after row. Stop and read the tombstones and lay it to heart and groan. Groan. Jesus wept. He wept beside a grave, a tomb of his friend, Lazarus, dead four days. He wept. And he was fixing to raise him from the dead. It wasn't like he was gone. He groaned this condition. Lay it to heart, brothers. Lay it to heart. Death is certain. The famous quote, there are only two things that are certain, death and taxes. That's not true. I know a lot of people that don't pay taxes. But death is certain, my friend. We will all die. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to a few men. No. All. All. No man, the Bible says, no one has the power to retain the spirit or the power over the day of death. Everybody that is in Adam dies. All in Adam die. Man, and from the very beginning of Scripture, you, you get this drumbeat of the certainty of death. Genesis 5, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. That's what you're going to see if you go to the graveyard, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Just look at the global death rates. In one minute, 100 people. In, in the span of this sermon, 6,000 gone. By the end of today, nearly half the population of Jackson gone. Every day. It's the most obvious thing around us and it's the one thing we never lay to heart. We need to groan over the mortality of this present life. Death is certain. Listen to me. You're going to be there one day. You're going to be there. That last moment you realize, man, this is the end. It's going to come. That wave of certainty is going to come over you. It doesn't matter who you are. Death is in, in, indiscriminate. It doesn't care who you are. Rich or poor, young or old, male or female. 
feeble or strong, healthy or unhealthy, wise or fool, blue collar, white collar, righteous, unrighteous, regardless of your race, regardless of your nationality, it's the same for all. Do not all go to one place. Again, go. That's what the Bible says, but go to the, go to the graveyard and see. Read the tombstones. All walks of life, all stations, all ages. It doesn't matter. This is the end of all mankind. And we need to lay at the heart. It's certain. It's indiscriminate. And it's imminent. It's imminent. It's near. It's right here. Man, this is probably the greatest lie that we tell ourselves. This is probably the, our greatest deception. Not me. Not now. Not soon. Yet it's certain. It's indiscriminate and it's near. But the Bible tries and tries to jar us into this reality. What is your life, James says? A mist. How long does mist last? How long does it take for it to disappear? Death is imminent. The Bible doesn't count our lives in terms of centuries. Even, not even years most times. It's days. Teach me the number of my days. Or hours. And this is our problem. Solomon says men do not, they don't know his time. Man does not know his time. We don't lay it to heart. We need to pray like the psalmist. Listen. Oh Lord, make me know my end. What is the measure of my centuries? What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. I'm trying to help you with that. He says, behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, a mere shadow. Children, wake up. Young men, young women, wake up. Old folks, wake up. Get a heart of wisdom. Number your days, it says. Read the tombstones. Look at the date ranges. Lay it to heart. Death is humbling. It's humbling. Because, man, there is nothing that levels the playing field like death. It puts us all in our place because you know what? We think we're the center of the universe. We cannot imagine our own death. We cannot imagine the world continuing on without us. How are they going to manage it work without me? How's the family going to get along without me? They will. An honest assessment from Scripture 
humbles you in this. It says all flesh is gold. No, grass. You're dust. He says when, when, when your breath departs, you return to the earth. And on that day, on that very day, your plans perish and there is no enduring remembrance. You'll be long forgotten. Long forgotten. We can't imagine that. Man, death is humbling because it, is, it exposes this reality. The most famous men ever are soon forgotten. The statues crumble or they tear them down. The buildings with your name on it are torn down. The streets with your name on it, they're changed. Our great-grandchildren don't even know our name. When death comes, it's not only the end of our bodies, but it's the end of our name and our accomplishments and our plans and our memory. Again, if you don't believe the Bible, just go to the graveyard. Lay it to heart. Over here, you see a fresh grave, fresh dirt, fresh flowers, fresh tombstone. Over here, there's one broken down. You can't hardly even read the name on it anymore. And it says gone but not forgotten. No, forgotten. Sounded good when you wrote it. Man, doesn't that make you groan? Does it make you groan? But don't forget to tremble. Because this is God's doing. This is the payment. The wages of sin is death. Death is of the Lord. It is appointed for man to die. It's appointed. Somebody has appointed your death. The exact day of it has been appointed by God. It's already written. It's already written. The number of your days are already written and recorded by God. He, he reveals this in, in Deuteronomy. He says, see, now I, I am he. There is no God besides me. I kill and I make a lie. When, when the Lord takes away their breath, they die and return to death. How sobering is all this? And this is more than enough to make you groan if you really think about it. It's enough to drive you to total despair. And if I ended the sermon right here, if, if this was the reality, if this was all there was, my goodness. My goodness. You know, some don't know the rest of this story. And for some, it is absolute despair when they consider these things. 
but not us. Not us. Christians groan with creation, but not like the world. We do not lose heart, even though our outer self is wasting away. We don't lose heart. We groan, but not like the world who has no hope. Christian groaning is different, way different, way different, because there's more truth here. See, we groan, Christians groan, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan because we have the Spirit. You get that from this text? We groan because we have the Spirit. Because we actually understand. We've got the spirit of truth. We've got the spirit of adoption. We've got the helper that's revealed the truth of these things to us. That's why we groan different. See, Christian groaning is like the pains of childbirth. This is what Paul says. Look, we know, verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in, in the pains of childbirth. Not just creation, but we ourselves. Think about that for a second. See, those words are not there by accident. Think about what he's saying. That's a very informed way to groan. This is why our spirit-filled groaning is far different because we understand the pain. We understand the pain like a mama giving birth. She's not hopeless and given over to despair. Why? Because she knows. She understands the process. Her groaning is very informed. There will be pain, much pain, sometimes intense moments of pain, but it will be brief, so very brief in light of this new life and this great joy that is set before me. That's Christian groaning. And Jesus explains it all. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she, she no longer remembers the anguish. For the joy. For the joy. See, brothers and sisters, we know. We, we know that suffering is the path to glory. Because we believe God's word. Paul's grown here and his goal here is the same as mine. To turn your eyes from fool's gold to the riches that are set before us. To turn our eyes from these fleeting pleasures and riches and comforts and spectacles of life because they're dust, they're vapor, they're mirages. They will not last. They're nothing. They're dung in comparison to the life to come. That's what this is all about. Verse 18, this is what it's all about. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Suffering, then glory. We know that suffering is the path to glory. And we know that the suffering is so momentary and so light 
in comparison to what is right around the corner for those who are in Christ. It's not worth comparison. This is why we don't lose heart. We groan, but we don't lose heart. So, brothers and sisters, this, this groaning is a longing, not a lament. If you understand the gospel, you understand that Christian groaning is not a lament, but it's a longing. It's not about despair. It's about hope. Groaning over the pains of the present life is simultaneously a longing for the glories of the life to come. Go back to verse 23. What, what here in, in verse 23, what is this ultimate object of our groaning, of all this groaning in Romans 8? It says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Christians, we, we groan with eager longing, he says, for the redemption of our bodies. And creation joins us. They, they can't wait. Creation can't wait until the revealing of the sons of glory, until the revealing of the sons of God. He, Paul equates that to resurrection. Why is creation so interested? It's because that's when we're all set free from the bondage. Of corruption. This is exactly what redemption means. Somebody has paid a price to release you from bondage. Brothers and sisters, the price has been paid. The release is coming. It's called resurrection, redemption of our bodies. This, this is the hope in which we're saved. And it's not just that we're going to come to life and be indestructible. We're going to be with God. We are adopted sons of the God of the universe. You talk about what no eye has seen, no ear heard, no heart ever imagined. What is it like to be absolutely immortal in a glorified body and be a real son of the true and living God who creates and sustains all things in heaven and on earth? What's that like? I don't know. We ain't got anything to compare it to. Nothing compares to it. Nothing. We long for the life to come. There's a little sentence that's gripped me over and over again. It's a little sentence in 1 Timothy 4, verse 8. Paul's talking about godliness. He's not really even talking about resurrection and the coming glories and all those kind of things. He's just talking about godliness. And he says it's valuable in this life and the next. But just listen to what he says. He says it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. That phrase has gripped me. There's a life to come. Man, we, we think we've got a life going on. Like, we're busy, we got life full. Our life that we've got now is real and it's full and, and we're doing things, we're seeing things. But you know what? That's this present life, but there's a life to come. There's a whole nother 
life to come. Have you ever really thought about that? In this hope, we were saved. Not hope in the present life, not hope in our best life now or the things that we got, but the things that are to come. Not the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Not the present life, but the life to come. This is our faith. God who gives life to the dead. This is the promise. Eternal life. With Him. As sons. Whoever has the Son has life. Because now I want you do you see Jesus isn't mentioned in this paragraph. Nowhere in this paragraph, 18 through 25, Jesus is not mentioned. But do you see the glory of Christ in this passage? Jesus came for us. For us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into this world. The one that I just spent half an hour describing to you. He subjected himself to futility and death. He came into this world, this cursed world, his Cursed world full of futility, full of corruption, sin abounding, and he came to save sinners. He came to save the ones who had ruined his creation. He came from heaven to save the dust. He came from heaven to save the withering grass, the, the nothings. Do you, do you see what your identity is if you don't have Christ? You're dust. That's all you are. Is a, but the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us. He came into the world to save us. That's an identity beyond all comparison. But the man of heaven, the darling of heaven, plunged into this sin-ravaged world to save Sinners. He subjected himself to futility and death. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He groaned like we groaned. He wept like we wept. He was tempted like we're tempted. Yet he was a, without sin at all. He tasted death for us. Even death on a bloody cross. He's the redeemer. He's the one that shelled up the price. He's the one that paid the price of our redemption. In Him, we have redemption by His blood. Blood, like the precious blood of the Lamb. Without spot, without blemish. More precious than gold that it would redeem not just untold numbers of sinners, but all of creation. Do you see that? Creation is longing for the redemption of Christ. What kind of price does it take to buy back who knows how many souls to buy back all of creation 
He did it by a single sacrifice. And he sat down, waiting to come again. Christ is our life. He's the one that wore the crown of thorns and overturned all that futility. He's, he's the one who was raised on the third day, conquering death, the great enemy forever. He's the one who has life in himself. He is our life. Because he lives, we will live. Because he's raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. This is the glory of the gospel. And so what do we do? We turn our eyes to Jesus. We turn our eyes to Jesus. And guess what will happen? The things of this world with all their futility and corruption and vanity, the things of this world will go strangely dim. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? Man, it is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Does, does our God intend to dwell with us? He does. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? Man, it is. It is. This is why we show up every week. Praise be to the name of Christ. In him, we have redemption. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom please come. Please come quickly, King Jesus. We long for the day which you will split the sky open. We long for the day when you will make all things new. The day that you will wipe away every tear there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more thorns or viruses or futility, no more death. We will see your face. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see that glory now. I pray that you would help us to have this backdrop of futility and mortality to see the glories to come. Give us eyes of faith. Lord, I really do. I pray you give us eyes of faith to see the unseen. To, to, to be like all the patriarchs in Hebrews 11. To be like all the apostles. To know for certain that it's far better to be with you. Please help us. We, we need it. It's the only thing that helps us persevere to the end. Help your people for it. In Jesus' name, amen.